Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome to the Empower Neurologist. Looks like the food that we think that we're getting in the grocery stores and in restaurants may not be what we think it is. Uh, it turns out that about a third of fish that you might buy in the market uh, is intentionally mislabeled. That's 70 to 80 percent of so-called extra virgin olive oil that you might buy in the grocery store is fake and so many other things to explore, including Kobe beef, Parmesan cheese, etc., that are so wonderfully described in this new book called Real Food, Fake Food. Uh, I like the subtitle, uh, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and uh, What You Can Do About It by Larry Olmsted. Larry Olmsted is a food writer for Forbes and for USA Today. And I've really enjoyed reading his book. Uh, it's an eye-opening experience, so we're going to talk to him right now. Well, hello, Larry Olmsted. Hello, doctor. Thanks um, for having me. Here's your book, and I want to tell you it's really, really great. And, you know, a lot of what we do, our work is really centered on food, and you have called attention to the fact that, caveat emptor, we uh, need to be beware that uh, what we think we're getting, we are not getting. And I want to just jump right in with, you know, one of the foods that we love to talk about on this program is extra virgin olive oil. And uh, from what I read in your book, uh, this may not be what we're, we're getting in restaurants and what we buy in the store. Tell us all about that. Well, I mean, extra virgin olive oil is popular because it's delicious and it's uh, certainly the healthiest uh, widely used oil for you. You know, it's been shown to have um, heart health benefits and, and been linked to a lot of other health benefits. So uh, I'm a big fan. I use a lot and I want people to get the best quality because you get better flavor and um, better benefits from good quality extra virgin olive oil. The problem is that um, for a long time, you know, this goes back decades, a lot of what is sold labeled extra virgin olive oil has not met the legal standard. And it's a, a variety of reasons. Um, in the past, there certainly has been a lot of adulteration, either with other cheaper oils like seed oil, peanut oil, canola oil, or lower quality olive oil that did not make the extra virgin grade um, being passed off as extra virgin. And I, I look at it like gasoline. When you go to fill your car, you have regular, premium, and super premium. And in olive oil, it's the same way. You, you crush an olive, you get olive oil, but not all of that olive oil is extra virgin. Extra virgin is supposed to represent the very best portion of the market. But in this country, it's kind of hard to even buy a bottle that doesn't say extra virgin. Whereas if you were in a, a supermarket in Europe, you would see extra virgin and virgin sold as two sort of different things. So no, I was um, going to say, uh, one of the things that you talked about in your book was how in Italy, uh, their bumper crop or their extra, <laughs> no, their, their, their residual, what was originally extra virgin olive oil is then used in next year's olive uh, oil. So it's not fresh anymore, but yet they're still able to call it extra virgin. Right. And that's probably the biggest problem. Um, I think the, the sort of outright adulteration has been reduced a lot in the marketplace. Testing, chemical analysis has gotten better. But the problem is, you know, we sell about or consume about the same amount of olive oil globally every year. It fluctuates a little bit, but doesn't fluctuate as much as the harvest does. So if there's a big harvest, there's leftover oil. And that's stored and added into the following year. And year-old olive oil is already pretty old. And what happens a lot of times is um, 
the oil does meet the standard for extra virgin when it's bottled, um, just barely, but olive oil deteriorates pretty quickly. And then it takes months before between the time it's bottled and it reaches the consumer. It's shipped by boat. Uh, it goes to warehouses. Uh, it's it's uh, you know needs to get to the supermarket. So often maybe it it barely made the legal threshold when it was made, and it doesn't when you buy it. Um, so it's not sort of an outright fraud deception, but there are a lot of ways where consumers can just protect themselves by buying fresher, better oil to begin with. But that said, there is seemingly plenty of fraud and deception uh, in terms of. Uh, trying to adulterate other types of vegetable oils and convince people that this is olive oil. I mean, we know that's happening. Um, yeah, I, I do think, again, that it's going down a little bit. When Great. when I started researching this, and if you look at like um, Tom Mueller's book, Extra Virginity, which came out about 10 years ago about the industry, there were studies that had really high numbers. Uh, earlier this year, the National Consumer League did a supermarket study, uh, tested it, and I think you know they found about 40-something percent, 45 percent non-compliant, which mm -hmm. is still a lot, but you know it's less than half. Other studies have shown more. Um, and um, the earlier this year, Congress uh, ordered the FDA to start testing imported olive oil, and their main concern was that if it was if it were to be adulterated with a specifically peanut oil or soy oil, a lot of people are allergic to those, and it's more of a problem when you're allergic to something that's not supposed to be in the product you're buying. Sure. Let me just for our viewers say that this is more than just an expose about olive oil and Parmesan cheese and Kobe beef and fish. Uh, what Larry talks about uh, are his travels around the world, and there's an upside here of all the good food that you like to eat. I think it's really, uh, it, it was unexpected. I thought it was just going to be, you know, another expose talking about how th these things have been adulterated. But you really, uh, you know, entice the reader with all these great recipes you have in the book and about your travels as well. And I also want to say that you made a recommendation in your a book about a certain brand or a company that imports uh, olive oil from Australia, I contacted them and I actually ordered eight bottles of their olive oil that came from Australia and it was phenomenal, so I appreciate that. Let me talk about, you know, I'm in Florida and we have on the menu here a lot of grouper <laughs> and a lot of red snapper. Let's start with red snapper because apparently if you see red snapper on the menu, it ain't likely gonna be what you get, right? Uh, that is absolutely true. I mean, seafood is probably overall the worst category in my book. And among that category, red snapper is the single worst fish. So you're talking sort of the worst of the worst of fraud. Uh, one scientist uh, I interviewed, I asked, you know, what can you do? And he said, just never order red snapper. Um, in a lot of tests, more than 90% of the time you try to buy it in restaurants or stores, you don't get red snapper. I just saw another test of sushi restaurants. It was like 84% of the red snapper was. And I mean, this means you could eat out. Uh, one one, one uh, scientist from Oceana, a nonprofit um, environmental group, said you, you could go to a city like L.A. and eat out every day for a month ordering red snapper and not get it once. Wow. And uh, you talk about a study that was done in New York looking at sushi in terms of the veracity of their claims on the menu of what they were actually giving people. And I think it was 100% of all the sushi restaurants that you visited actually were faking uh, to some degree. 
yeah, they um, they uh, they didn't. It was a, a relatively small sample. I think they went to something like twenty eight restaurants. But still, you would hope that one of those would uh, not serve fake food. And that has since that was a few years ago. But that has since been repeated. Uh, twenty twenty Inside Edition, the doctors, a number of shows have done the similar, uh, typically in New York or L.A., and uh, usually find around close to one hundred percent failure rate. So we would expect uh, that uh, some governmental agency, be it the FDA or something at the state or local level, would be looking out for us. What's happening with that? Well, the FDA is responsible for inspecting imported seafood, and, and when uh, that's almost all of the seafood. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 93% of the seafood we consume in this country is imported. So the vast majority is imported, supposed to be inspected by the FDA. They are legally mandated to inspect 2% of the imported seafood, and year after year they fail to do that and come up kind of woefully short of that benchmark. Um, though it is improving right now because um, two years ago President Obama launches presidential task force to combat seafood fraud. And one of their things has been to pressure the FDA to do its job better. Um, I personally, in all of these food topics, I found that, you know, the FDA is more concerned with, uh, you know, what it, it considers severe health risks, outbreaks, contaminations, things like that, than, you know, their tact from when I spoke to them and, and, and read their reports is that, you know, uh, mislabeled olive oil, mislabeled seafood isn't killing people. It's not sort of worth our budgetary resources. Uh, yeah, true. But you, you did call attention to one type of fake uh, food in sushi restaurants that is, in fact, responsible for, um, uh, for usually substituted for what you think might be tuna, uh, that there was a type of fish that was used quite a bit and does make people sick. Uh, that's true. It's escalar, escalar. which... Uh, its nickname in the in the uh, seafood industry is the Exlax of the sea because it contains a, a waxy ester that um, gives a lot of people stomach distress. And I always say that if people eat sushi regularly, sooner or later, they're going to probably feel ill the next day. And people say, oh, I must have had bad tuna. But the reality is you probably are sick because you didn't have tuna at all. You had escalar. And um, – Escalar, uh, in one recent study, 84% of the fish substituted for tuna in sushi restaurants was escalar. And it's uh, ironically, you know, we, we imported the tradition of eating sushi from Japan. In Japan, which is a very health conscious country, escalar is banned. You're not allowed to serve it. Uh, Italy as well. So, you know, wow. it's, it's not going to kill you, but it could definitely make you sick. So I go to my local uh, uh, place to buy meat. And they have a special this week on Kobe beef. What am I getting? Uh, not nothing that came from Japan, uh, for sure. I mean, Kobe beef is the sort of Rolls Royce of red meat. It's the most famous, uh, among the most expensive and rare beef in the world, um, and it is very distinctive and very good. Not it's not everyone's cup of tea because it's it's very fatty too rich for some people, but it's definitely different from the meat we're used to. I've gone to Japan and tried it. And it is widely available on restaurant menus in the United States. Hundreds of places across the country claim to serve it. Uh, retail as well. You can go into stores and see Kobe beef. Almost all of it is a lie. There are 10 restaurants in the United States that are licensed to import and serve Kobe beef. 10. Wow. 
count them on, on your fingers, every other one is lying. And um, none of it is sold at retail with the exception of one restaurant in um, Texas that has an attached butcher shop. So uh, you cannot buy Japanese Kobe beef at the supermarket. The problem is the Japanese producers were unable to trademark the name Kobe in this country. So legally, it's meaningless. But if you think you're buying that Japanese beef, you're not. Can you walk us through what goes into making um, you know, the, the real backstory on Parmigiano, uh, Reggiano cheese, sort of a little bit of the history and what it takes to make that cheese, and then now how that whole scenario has been bastardized in terms of what we think we're getting in the shaker can? I mean, that's probably the two sides of the spectrum. Sure. Um, well, it goes, as I was just saying with Kobe beef, right, a lot of traditional foods are what we call geographic designations. They're named after the place they're made. And, and the most famous example would be champagne, right? Champagne comes from the Champagne region of France. That's why it's called champagne, not vice versa. Parmigiano-Reggiano, by law, can only be made in the twin towns of Parma and Reggio in Italy, which is why it's called Parmigiano-Reggiano. And it's been made uh, the same way for roughly 800 to 1,000 years there. And the rules are very, very strict. Uh, the cattle that give the milk can only graze on fields that have never been had pesticides added to them or fertilizers. Uh, the cheese making process has to begin within two hours of the cows being milked. So you're talking the freshest, purest, drug-free, most nutritious milk immediately being made into a cheese that has no other uh, ingredients allowed except salt and rennet, which is the digestive enzyme that makes uh, cheese curdle. It's in almost pretty much all cheese. So that's about the, the least um, number of ingredients you can use and make cheese. And as a result, uh, well, then the other element is that it's aged for a, a very long time, on average 20 months, um, which, you know, most cheese is sold immediately upon being made. So that's a long time, almost two years. And um, in the cheese industry, uh, the nickname for this cheese is the king of cheeses. Uh, it's what sort of everyone emulates and wants to be. Um, chefs love it. Consumers love it. Um, it's famous. Again, like Kobe beef, uh, the Parmesan producers were unable to trademark the name Parmesan in this country. And, and Parmesan is just the English uh, version of Parmigiano-Reggiano. So people say, oh, it's not the same word. Well, you know, Italy is Italia. So that would be like saying Italy is different from Italia because we have a different word for it. So Parmesan is just the English word for Parmigiano-Reggiano, but it's not trademark protected. So producers in this country can make almost any kind of cheese and call it Parmesan, and it doesn't have to be limited to those ingredients. It doesn't have to be made from drug-free pure milk. It doesn't have to be aged. But when you buy it ground in the shaker containers, it gets a little bit worse because they add cellulose to stabilize it. Otherwise, it would clump up. And, and isn't there sawdust in there? Is that the cellulose you're getting getting at? Uh, the, you know, when when this sort of scandal broke last year, uh, a lot of the media called the cellulose sawdust. It's it's a plant fiber that mm. is similar to wood, but it's not like they're grinding up wood um, and putting it in the cheese. But you know, it's a similar end product. The problem is. You don't have to use a whole lot of cellulose to keep the cheese from clumping. The norm would be around 2%, and some of the producers were putting over 20% cellulose, which is obviously cheaper than cheese. So, you know, this is, again, a lot of the, the, the things I address in my book 
once you know their problems, they're easy to avoid. And this is the, the easiest example. Just don't ever buy grated cheese. Buy a wedge of cheese and you know, mainly you put it on your pasta. So take a grater, take a piece of cheese, go like this and you're in business. Well, a lot of our viewers may not know what the word pasta actually means. Well, that, that's for another discussion. You also talk about balsamic vinegar and uh, how we're being duped there as well. Yeah, now this is more of a misunderstanding because balsamic vinegar as a term is, is generic. It doesn't really have a legal meaning. In Italy uh, or when you go to a gourmet store and you're buying good balsamic vinegar, you're usually buying balsamic vinegar de Modena, which is the sort of the birthplace of uh, great balsamic vinegar as well as Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And, um, and it's uh, the – when the label says Modena, that's a protected name. It's aged a certain amount of time, made from very high quality grapes. Um, and it's a really excellent food stuff that's delicious. Um, but when you go to the supermarket and you buy something that just says balsamic vinegar, it doesn't really mean anything. It, it can be, you know, and it's not uh, a fraud in the sense that they're tricking you, but American consumers. We have so much balsamic vinaigrette in this country. Most people I know have never tasted good balsamic vinegar. And it's sort of, a, you know, as you mentioned, I wrote the book from a food lover's perspective. And good balsamic vinegar is one of these things. It's a game changer. Once you taste it, you want to put it on everything. I, I say in the book, I've had it on ice cream. Um, you know, it's thick. It's syrupy. It's sort of the, the vinegar version of chocolate syrup. <laughs> you know, it's not that watery stuff you buy for a few dollars in the supermarket. I ordered a bottle, and I think it was, <clears throat> I think it was twenty-five years old. Mm -hmm. It is, as you say, it was really very, very potent. Um, you also challenge the uh, notions of labeling in terms of things like um, free-range and organic and wild versus farm-raised. That even in those in regards, we may not be getting what we are looking for. Um, that's true, and it's two two problems. One is um, the actual fraud. So when you buy salmon that's labeled wild-caught salmon and it's farm-raised, which happens a lot, that's illegal. You're really being ripped off. But it's, it happens a lot, especially in restaurants but also at retail. But then there are these terms that have no legal definition that are used to sort of trick the consumer. Natural would be the number one example of this. Now, the FDA has chosen – uh, it's it's not an oversight. It's not a mistake. They had hearings and they decided not to define the term natural. As a result, something like one in four or one in five new foods put on supermarket shelves across every category have the word natural on the label, even though to a rational person like you or I, they have no connection to anything natural. But because it has no legal definition, you can use it however you want. Uh, and, and that's true of a lot of these terms like you mainly rate. You know, people are becoming more interested in where their food uh, comes from. And as they seek better food, the producers come up with a new nomenclature to sort of mislead us. So it says you mainly raised on your eggs and you feel like, oh, that's great, but it has no legal meaning. Um, organic is one that generally does for most products. Um, and I think it's actually a pretty good definition. The, pro the big problem with organic, because uh, the USDA covers meats, uh, pork, poultry, beef, but they do not cover seafood. There's no organic definition for seafood at all, yet you can go to the supermarket and buy shrimp or fish that's labeled organic, and it's like it used to be with the other products 20 years ago where it just means nothing. Well, that said, if it's farm-raised, uh, is there not a way they can call a farm-raised uh, seafood organic if in fact the the animal was fed organic food 
Well, they can call it that, but there's no there's no legal definition of organic for seafood at all. The USDA is now considering enacting that, and yeah. you do have um, organic uh, similar standards in other countries. Like in Europe, they call it bio, so you could buy imported um, fish that meets the standards in its country. But again, because those aren't binding here, you don't know whether they really meet the standards or somebody just slapped extra words on the label. Mm-hmm. Let me, I, I'm not sure you went into great depth in the book about this, but what about wine? How, uh, where are we on mislabeling of wine? So the wine problem, there is, um, you know, some, some pure counterfeiting, but that's mostly with collector wines, mm-hmm. similar to collectible watches or something, you know, or paintings, you know, people will, will counterfeit very expensive wines. But for the average consumer, it's more an issue, again, of these geographic indications. Some of the world's most famous wines are named for the places they come from, Burgundy, Bordeaux, um, Rioja, uh, Sherry, Port. And in mm. this country, most of those terms, uh, Champagne I mentioned earlier, are not legally binding. So in all but six countries in the world, uh, including the United States, Russia, Uzbekistan, the Ukraine, if you buy a bottle of champagne, you're legally guaranteed to be getting a product of France. In the United States, it's legal to make something labeled champagne in upstate New York and sell it, and they do. And it's the same with uh, Burgundy, right? Burgundy uh, comes from Burgundy, but it doesn't just come from Burgundy in France and the rest of the world. It means when you buy a bottle of Burgundy that that red wine is 100% Pinot Noir grapes, can be made with nothing else, bo- raised, uh, grown in Burgundy. In this country, Burgundy doesn't mean anything. And you pick up a bottle labeled Burgundy, it's likely made with whatever grapes were selling cheapest at the time that the winemaker made it. Well, let me again uh, let our viewers take a look at your book and. Uh it's, I really, really enjoyed it. It was a pleasant read. I mean, you know, the information is not um, in, encouraging uh, on the one hand. Talking to you is a little bit more encouraging because I think from hearing it from you that we're going in the right direction. But I think, again, it, this is a situation of, of beware. And what I really like about it is you make some very good pragmatic recommendations so that we can at least be a couple of steps up on the process now that we know what, what's going on. So let me thank you for being on the program today and I uh, hope we get to talk soon. Thanks. Okay. Talk to you later. What an amazing interview. I guess the, the take home message here is caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. Uh, it's great that uh, Olmsted uh, gives us some really great uh, information in the book about alternatives and further how we can be sure, or at least to a reasonable degree of certainty, uh, that our food actually is what it uh, is labeled to be. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Bye-bye.